Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 53. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a high school, college, or professional basketball player. I already know you want to increase your vertical. Everyone wants to jump higher. Even us old coaches have dreams of being able to throw down in traffic. So today's podcast is for everyone who wants to play above the rim. Dr. Ramsey Nijem is the men's basketball director of sports performance at the University of Kansas. They finished the year ranked number one in the nation, pushing my zags into the number two spot in all the polls. But I won't hold that against them. Before coming to Kansas, Ramsey was the NBA's youngest head strength and conditioning coach, working with the Sacramento Kings for five years. He earned his doctorate of science in human and sports performance in 2018, after completing his master's of science in sports performance in 2013. And so with all his formal education and real-world basketball experience, I wanted to pick his brain on how to improve vertical leap for basketball players. Like you, I see all the jump programs that claim they can put 8 to 12 inches on your vertical. And I wanted to hear from an expert what we can expect from a jump program and what exercises we should be doing. So here's Dr. Ramsey Nijem. Ramsey, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? Man, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to pick your brain today. I've loved listening to you on other podcasts because you're so willing to share and you're so down to earth. So thanks again for coming on. And you have what seems like a really non-traditional path because most people, I think, start out in the lower levels, high school, college, with a goal of being a pro. And you actually went from the pros down to college. So I'd love to hear about your story and how you got to be where you are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely took the reverse route and what maybe some people from the outside may have thought, at least looking in, like, you know, why would you take a step backwards, quote unquote, in your career, on your journey? And uh, I certainly don't think it was. I actually think it's the opposite. I think that I've been able to propel myself to create more impact and do more than just you know, count reps and sets and some of those things. So, yeah, I mean, you know, long story short, I've, I spent the past five years in the NBA with the Sacramento Kings. I'm a California boy, born and raised in the Bay Area. Moved out to Lawrence, Kansas just about a year ago. Two weeks from now would be a year. And, uh, you know, never in my wildest dreams thought I would live in Lawrence, Kansas. But, you know, certainly I've loved every second of the experience so far. And if you're a college basketball fan out there, then you may or may not know that we were able to finish number one. So I was excited about that last season. I was actually more excited to see what we were made of in the tournament, obviously. And they call it March Madness for a reason. So I'm not going to sit here and say we were going to win it all. But I, I was excited. And, uh, and that got shut down. But it's been a great year of stepping into the college realm and enjoying every minute of being able to create impact for these young men. I should have called you Dr. Nijem. Tell me a little bit about your doctorate work. Yeah, so 2018 finished a doctorate of science in human and sport performance and health and health promotion and wellness. And that was really, I think, just the culmination of really what my journey had been up until that point in strength and conditioning. So, you know, started as kind of a personal trainer, as most of us do, and then turned that into the athletics, you know, niche. And as that grew, my interest in the field obviously grew and went on to get a master's degree in a traditional kind of academic setting, brick and mortar at the Center for Sport Performance for Cal State University of Fullerton, Southern California. And that experience there just during the master's and 
working in the lab and doing research and learning the more nuanced, you know, conversations that you have in those master's programs. I just, you know, fell in love with the field. I was 21 at the time or 20, 22 when I finished that. And so for me, it was just taking a step back and realizing, you know, I'm pretty young. I already got the master's. You know, you might as well spend four more years and just finish this journey off. And, you know, I always tell people I look at school like the same way I want my athletes to look at competition or practice or training. It, to me, it was just wake up, put the work in and get it done every day. And so I spent four years doing that, which culminated in a dissertation, looking at workload in the NBA and specifically looking at four years of game data over a cohort of four years, 2013 to 17, looked at first injury occurrence. I looked at a few different variables and ultimately, you know, created this regression model, injury prediction. And I always throw that out there with a smile because the reality is the model was terrible. You can't predict injury. And I knew that going into it, I was actually excited to formalize data around the thought process that you probably can't predict injury because, as you know, every week there's a new company that wants to charge you $30,000 to predict all your injuries. And You know, I certainly don't subscribe to that concept. So, yes, spent a good amount of time studying and all that good stuff, but I am excited that it's over with at least a formal setting of learning. And obviously, we all still continue to learn every day. But, yeah, happy to be done with that and think that it's been invaluable for sure in my career. So two more questions. Why basketball strength conditioning and why is the division one level or specifically being at Kansas a step up from what most people would think the pinnacle of the NBA is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why basketball, man, one's an easy one. I, deep in my heart, I think I'm an NBA player still to this day. I'm convinced that you know, I'm only 5'10 for the listeners listening. Like I, I tell my guys, you know, I'm 5'12, man. Like I'm 5'12. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a physical specimen and I'm far from uh, an incredible athlete. But I grew up playing the game. I always wanted to be an NBA player. It wasn't good enough to make it to the NBA. And at the age of 18, realized, you know, that getting paid to play basketball, certainly in America, wasn't going to happen. You know, maybe if I wanted to go find a country overseas and, and try to compete, you know, maybe. But that wasn't the life that I was pursuing. So, you know, as soon as you got to hang them up, you got to find obviously a career, you know, when the dream quote unquote ends, you got to find a career. And it was right around that time that, you know, I was based, I was still training a lot because I thought I was, you know, an athlete. And so from there, it just turned into like, well, you train all the time. You love working out. My peers started to ask me to train them. And then it just became kind of natural. Like, well, why don't you turn this into a career? And of course, my love for basketball just bled into, you know, my love for strength and conditioning and real fortunate. And I always, you know, got to put that out you know, and be transparent. Like I was super fortunate to meet the right people and impress the right people at the right time in my career. And so I was able to make it to the NBA, which transitions to the, the second question of why college to me is a little bit better of an option. I think it's certainly a great goal to, to strive to be a basketball or NBA specific strength coach. You know, I never want my story to knock people from getting there. Like if that's your goal, go and achieve it. That was my goal. And once you achieve that goal, well, now you got to, you know, take a step back and reexamine it and then and create new goals, right? If you just achieve your goals and then you don't create new ones, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? So for me, it was once I accomplished the goal of becoming the head strength and conditioning coach of an NBA team, I was 25 when I accomplished that. And it was like, okay, well, you check that off the box. Then second of that was, like, okay, can you do a good job at that? And at some level, doing a good job was like, well, make sure that you get a second contract because I was on a three-year contract, my first contract. But uh, as you start to kind of dive into that role and appreciate what you're doing and and building things out, you know, I brought in a dietitian and you watch the staffs grow. So now we're looking at sports science as part of the conversation. Nutrition is there, obviously doing some rehab with athletic trainers. You got the strength and conditioning still. And 
So the role expanded into like this really exciting opportunity where I felt like I was bringing a lot of value in a lot of different areas. And with all that going on, the MBA also expanded, right? Support staffs moved from two athletic trainers, two strength coaches, maybe a PT, to now having multiple strength coaches, multiple ATCs, multiple PTs, a dietitian, sports psych, sports scientists, data analysts, chefs. And so these support staffs grew so rapidly that some of the things that I was originally tasked with doing was actually being passed off, right? So now instead of me being kind of the pseudo dietitian or sports nutritionist, I brought in a dietitian. And so you enjoy creating it, but then you start to realize like, oh, my value is actually decreasing a little bit. And through that process, what I actually realized is my passion more so than anything was just creating impact for young guys. And I was fortunate to have rookie classes of De'Aaron Fox, Justin Jackson, Marvin Backley, Harry Giles, Frank Mason. You know, I was able to have Bogdan Bogdanovich, Willie Colley Steins, all these guys come to mind. But you start to realize like, wow, getting a guy in his first year or second year in the NBA, trying to teach him the ropes a little bit trying to hold them accountable, create culture. Like those are the things that I really fell in love with. And strength and conditioning just became the medium to those outcomes. For me, that was way more important than making sure that they did their workouts. Because in my mind, if I create a culture and create accountability and create a desire to be great, well, they're going to want to come train anyway. That's just part of the same way they strap their shoes up and go get shots up. They would want to come in the weight room. So for me, it was taking a step back when I got a phone call from Coach Self and saying, you know, hey, you can do this every day with 18 and 19 year olds. And it's going to be felt a lot more because the entire roster is 18 and 19 and 20 versus the NBA. Only a handful of your guys are that age. The other guys are 30 with wife and kids and they don't need you to teach them about those things. So it was almost for me like a step, you know, into college became a step into the full time role that I feel like I was built for creating impact and helping now helping 18, 19 year olds achieve their dreams. And because I've been where they want to go, I think my words carry a little bit further here. And so as you can tell, you know, it's a long winded way to say I'm excited and now able to create much more impact every day with these guys. Well, that's awesome. Today, what I was hoping is we could dig into Vertical Leap because I guarantee every one of my listeners, not just our high school college players listening, but even the parents and the coaches all want to be able to jump higher. Everyone wants to be able to dunk. And there's not a shortage of programs out there on the internet that can claim they can give you eight to 12 inches. But I wanted to hear from you, someone that would really with a strong science background and be able to talk about how can we get the most out of our athletes power-wise in the vertical plane. So when I ask you about what is jump training or when I ask you about vertical leap training, what comes to mind? Yeah, three things start, you know, immediately jump off the page in my mind. If you're listening, if all you take from what I say today is these three things, I think that you'll have a better appreciation for how to jump higher. So if you want to jump higher, the first thing you probably should do is consider where your body fat is at. Ultimately, jumping high is your muscles ability to move your mass through the air vertically, right? Vertical displacement. And fat doesn't fly is, you know, a common phrase that's out there. Fat don't fly. And if you have excess body fat, it's no different than jumping with a weight vest on. So if you have excess body fat and what is excess, that's probably very nuanced and context specific because if you're a football lineman having excess or extra body fat might actually help you in sport performance. It depending on your sport and basket or your position in basketball, right? A guard versus a big guy. So that context is probably too much for me to answer. But in general, I think good rule of thumb is excess body fat. If you have it, get lose a little bit of it and you should jump higher already. The second one is get stronger because jumping is a body mass movement. 
meaning it's a relative strength movement. So the amount of force that you can produce and the speed that you can produce it at ultimately is going to be what propels you vertically and determines at some level takeoff speed, takeoff velocity. And relative to your body mass, that's going to determine how high you get. And then last but not least, do it more. Do it often. Just jump more. Jumping is a skill. And if you wanted to learn how to make a left-hand layup, you would go out in the driveway and do a bunch of left-hand layups. And that's not very complex or complicated. But for some reason, when we get into certain movements, we get confused. And so if you want to jump higher, it's a skill. Go and jump more. And you can add, I mean, go and find the highest jumper you know. And they probably didn't, haven't done a lot of strength training, but they're probably a pretty lean athlete. And they probably have been jumping since they were like seven years old, right? So those are the top level, I think, if you're writing, taking notes or you're listening, those are three things I would say is lose excess body fat, get a little bit stronger and practice, practice, practice. I love that you said jumping's a skill because I really believe almost everything in life is a skill. When you're coaching jumping, how much are you coaching the skill? Are you cueing body angle, use of arms, um, you know, knees diving in? What does that look like when you're coaching athletes to jump? Yeah, yeah. We just had kind of a session this morning. The two biggest things that I would kind of coach are intent. Because if you want to jump higher, you have to actually have true intent to jump high, as high as you can, relatively often. Because you need that potent stimulus, right? So basketball players who go out and may, maybe they're just practicing or maybe they're taking jump shots or layup lines or whatever, or even guys who have real, like real bounce, even dunking is not an actual big enough stimulus because you only have to get to 10 feet. Well, if you could jump 40 inches and you're already, you know, six, seven with a six, nine wingspan, like dunking the ball is relatively easy. So the two main things that I often would coach are just intent. So we're only doing a few reps and every one of those reps needs to be extremely intentful. You need to try to jump higher. You need to train with the intent that the vertical goes up. And then as far as technique or the skill goes up jumping, I will coach bits and pieces of it. But usually I only focus on one thing in a session. So like today, the only thing I really focused on was the timing of the arms, right? And so when you go to take off, are the arms timed appropriately to pull you through basically the sky? Once you're, once the feet leave the ground, there's not much you can do. But if you time the arms appropriately while on the ground, then that should pull you up. But you'll see, even if you just, you know, if you go out and watch a team of 15 players jump, you're going to look at 15 different strategies. And, you know, of those 15, three to five of them are probably leaving the ground where their arms haven't even really reached kind of past their chest line to start moving up vertically. And so guys are leaving the ground before their arms are getting them to where they need to go. So little things like that will cue. And usually I'll just, you know, I'll let them do some bad reps and then I'll cue and demo what I want to see. And then they give it a go and it gets a little bit better. But I don't try to get too complicated with it because if you start to make them think too much about the skill, well, now they're thinking about the technique and not jumping high. And we need you to think about jumping high because there's also people with bad technique who can still jump high. So like never lose the intent. And then I try to just piece in little coaching cues throughout. When you have your players jump on boxes, you know, you have that kind of that sweet spot where it's challenging them, but they're also maybe not having to pick their knees up so far. So they're up at their chest. What are some guidelines that you have athletes look at when they're going to choose a box height? Yeah, good question. Yeah, we see so much on Instagram, right, with the guys doing more like rapid hip flexion than, than box jumps. If the box is too high, I mean, that's a pretty easy one. If you can't land in, in a quarter squat, like if you need to land deeper than a quarter squat, you know, half squat or and even a half squat, I'll let them get away with. But if you have to land like parallel in a squat position or deeper, then you're not actually working on vertical jump. You're working on rapid hip flexion and 
just trying to get the toes over the box so that you don't clip it. So usually I have a tendency to actually use boxes that are lower than maybe some other people may use. And then I just coach jump higher than the box. So don't just jump to the box, but jump higher than the box. And so you should be able to land, I would argue you should be able to land basically in a full tall position where the knees are, you know, only maybe slightly bent at five to 10 degrees, like basically terminal knee extension. Can you land in that position if you had to? If the answer is yes, great. Now land in a quarter squat. If that's too low, then we can always bring it up a little bit. But I'd probably err on the side of a lower box than a higher box because their egos will get the best of them and they just want to see who can jump on the highest box. And that's not vertical jump as, you know, as we know as strength coaches. Tell me a little bit about your break before gas philosophy. I watched your coffee with coach the other day on Instagram. I thought it was great. But I thought this is a really cool analogy to think about maybe even set the table for beginning a jump program. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's literally how we start all of our programs, our kind of quote unquote block zero. We did some jumps today and a movement day, and it's really just a lighter day to break up our week. But our traditional lifting sessions start with the progression of kind of gas or excuse me, breaks before gas. Like right now, tall bilateral snap downs. And what I kind of went through in that presentation is like, I think it was like 30 different, technically 30 different snap down variations you can do. And for the listeners, you know, if you don't know what snap down is, basically standing tall, hands overhead. And then you snap your body down into a landing position of, you know, maybe a half squat. But my general, you know, approach and thought process there is that guys are going to get a ton of jumping in practice, in games, in their extra shots. There's a relative to the landing stimulus, there's a whole bunch of propulsion or jumping stimulus. And so, you know, for me, it's just how do we begin to train the stimulus and adaptation of landing and specifically those eccentric qualities to control the landing, control flexion, triple flexion, and make sure that all those tissues can handle those demands. And so, you know, once we have that, once we understand that we have breaks, then I think to train the gas a little bit, if you will. So I think the analogy, you know, in that specific lecture is you wouldn't want to hop in a race car, you know, if you don't have good brakes, right? Because just because you can get up to 200 miles per hour, 300 miles per hour doesn't mean much if you can't slow your car down because you're going to wreck. And so we want to make sure that the engine is where it needs to be, but every system around that is actually prepared to handle the ultimate outputs that's, that we're going to work on, which is jumping a little bit higher. And then, and then the neuromuscular control of that, which to me would be like the analogy of the actual skill of the driver itself. So does the athlete have the ability to control landing, jumping, cutting, and all of those things? And then do you have the eccentric qualities to make sure that, you know, you aren't getting hurt? And if all of those are there, to me, those are all the prerequisites. And once those are there, great. Now let's just work on going faster or going higher in this case. How much of a stickler are you about the knees diving in? Is that a concern for you at all? Is there kind of a Goldilocks, as long as it's not too much or too little, it's not a big deal? How do you coach that piece of it? Yeah, I think the Goldilocks kind of approach is, is there something there to valgus potentially leading the injury mechanisms? Yeah, I mean, probably in sport, especially if you bring in high velocity cutting and you pair it with lack of controlled flexion, that's probably not good. But in the weight room, you know, if guys have a little bit of valgus during a jump, it's not the end of the world to me. I've seen some of the best jumpers in the world actually have some of that valgus. And I haven't seen research on this, but I think that there's probably something to actually a little bit of valgus and kind of creating torque and rotation at the hip and allowing that to actually load up your spring a little bit before you take off. So there's probably a benefit 
to that, which is why I think you see so many high jumpers adopt that strategy. But, you know, at what level does it become risky? You know, I think those are all, you know, debatable kind of concepts. And the research that I've seen on kind of knee valgus or the knees diving in, its prediction ability or predictable ability to injury isn't very strong. There's a couple of papers out there, but some of them are pretty flawed. So it's not somewhere like I lose sleep over it. But if we see it in a dynamic task, it's Goldilocks. If we see it in a very controlled task, then usually what I'll do is actually just cue the guy out of it to see if he can get out of it. Because I believe at some level of gross, like movement adaptability and movement variability. And so it's okay if the knee dives in a little bit during a dynamic movement, but if it's a controlled task, you should be able to control your body. And so that's kind of my general approach. If it's dynamic and speeds and and even like complexity, then a little bit's okay. But I want to see our guys be able to demonstrate to me that if I ask them to keep their knee, you know, aligned with their foot or toe or where, can they do that? And the answer for a lot of young guys is actually no, they can't. So that's something that we, we do still work on. But specifically, if we're doing a counter movement jump, it's not something that, you know, I lose sleep over. What are some of those other prerequisites? You know, we talked about you got to have brakes before you have the gas, you know, maybe some landing mechanics, making sure that it's not, you know, more symmetrical. So maybe you're not the one knee just diving in. Tell me about maybe mobility. A huge one is strength. You know, you, mm-hmm. the idea that you can't start a plyometric program until you can squat X times your body weight. How do you take into account some of those other factors? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question and, and one that I don't have an eloquent answer for, unfortunately. People debate all day on, on these types of things. You know, example would be ankle range of motion, ankle dorsiflexion. You should be able to have one kind of approach is like the needle wall distance, which is something I've never understood because now it's tibia length is fully in control of needle wall distance and then foot length. So that doesn't make sense to me. But 40 degrees maybe of dorsiflexion has been thrown out. But that doesn't make sense either because of a whole bunch of different things that I think would come into play. And a lot of these, I think, prerequisites come from come from decent literature, you know, where what are the angles of the joints when you leave the ground or in sprinting, what do they look like? So the big one, like when it comes to strength, at least is, you know, the two times body weight squat. People love to shoot that one out there. And I don't subscribe to that at all. I think it's probably closer to one and a half times body weight that I would want to see our guys to back squat to a good depth. It's not something that we actually test. You know, it's not like there's a baseline of strength that you need to get to before I can progress you to something different. You know, we use velocity to kind of track some of the bar speeds. We have like an elite form on all our racks, which you can, I've used the Tendo in the past, or Gym Aware, whatever the modality is to gather speed doesn't actually matter much, but you can even use that to determine strength. So I don't really have a prerequisite of strength. I think that in general, basketball athletes should be able to back squat one and a half times their body weight. Trap bar deadlift, certainly two times body weight, but those aren't hard rules that we can't, you know, move on from. It's more of just a mental note. If a guy can't do that, we probably should be working a little bit more on that. But then that just becomes part of, I think, the puzzle of training guys. So if a guy can't do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't train in other areas. It just means that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the green mark on that. That's in his file. We know that that's going to become part of his program. He's going to work on that. But that same athlete also can't jump high. So if you wait all day to train him for his back squat to get up, well, you might either A, be losing time to increase his vertical jump or the reality is you might be decreasing his vertical jump. And we've, we've seen that in the research, right? You can, can technically make athletes weaker and get their vertical jump to go higher. And so, you know, I don't have these progression milestones or rules. I just have, I, I do have some general thoughts. Like I do think in general, from a general strength or relative strength perspective, you should be able to back squat one and a half times your body weight. You should probably be able to trap bar deadlift two times your body weight. 
but I'm not necessarily going to test those to make sure that you can do those. Now we have some indicators because we can look at bar speed. We can use bar speed. We can extrapolate that out for a regression model and tell us your estimated one RM and that proxy or that estimation is close enough for me. Like I don't need to see you actually do that. So, you know, the pure strength coach who's listening is going to say, well, that's, you know, that's a bunch of BS. You need to see them do it. That's fine. But I train, you know, same as you know, we were training tall athletes, the levers aren't built for this. And ultimately, they want to be good at basketball, not good at weightlifting. So I always want to keep that in my mind. Are you actually testing vertical leap at the college level? Is that something that you have a specific test for? Or is something you have a specific test for? Yeah, yeah, we do test it a few different ways. We'll test it with their hands on hips on our force plates. We'll test it with an arm swing on our force plates. We'll also test it with an approach on our vertex on the basketball court. And we'll test it at least twice. Last year, I tested it twice. I tested it about a month after I got here. I tested it. I took a month to kind of start to change the program to make it look more like what I wanted it to look like. And then at that point, once I felt like we had a decent foundation, we tested that vertical jump. And then we tested it again, actually, in the heart of season. And mainly, I think, to give them an appreciation for that. One, I care about your athleticism, because I think sometimes we forget that as strength coaches, that athletes want to be really good athletes. And so by testing the vertical, it actually holds them accountable and you accountable to demonstrate, like, I care about your athleticism. That is important to me. So we're going to test it and hold ourselves accountable to it. So those are the two vertex tests, where it's actually you know, the traditional kind of vertical jump test. It's also a test that they're going to do at the NBA combine. So I want guys to, I throw that out there a lot because I want them to, you know, hey, you said you want to be in the NBA. Well, part of that is going to be an NBA combine. Start thinking about those things. And so let's start preparing you for those. And then we test it at least twice a month on our force plates, which is a much easier data collection process because I can test that within a training session. And all they do is stand on our force plates, hands on hips, they jump, they jump three times. And they move on to their extra work. So it's not something, like I said, I don't lose sleep over where it's at, but it is more of a trend line for me. Is this thing moving in the right direction? But even not moving is actually a win. You know, I think even some of that's an education point for our guys. If your vertical jump doesn't go up in season, that actually can still be a good sign that our program is working because during season, we might have thought it would come down because of fatigue and where we're at in season. So those are all, you know, different things that we educate around. But yeah, we take it during season for sure. Can you think of any myths that you could dispel for us? One of the things that I think about is setting realistic expectations for the average athlete. You know, you look online and you see, do this program, you're going to gain eight to 12 inches. And that doesn't seem like very common, especially if you already have a decent vertical, if you've been training for a while to to think that you're going to put on another 12 inches. I think people might be a little disappointed. What are some of the myths that maybe that you have heard that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the biggest one. If you can add 8 to 12 inches to your vertical, it probably means you were a very bad athlete to start or you didn't jump a lot. Because even changes in technique aren't going to add 8 to 12 inches typically on your vertical jump. You know, if you're looking for kind of general, if you could jump 40 inches or more, you're like an extraordinary athlete. You know, it's so common for us to turn on TV and you hear things about Vince Carter jump 48 inches. Like, yeah, that's an exceptional athlete. Like, that's one of the best athletes to ever play within the realm of the best athletes that ever lived. If you're above 45, you're like a freak athlete. If you're above 40, you're a great athlete. If you're above 35, you're a good athlete. And if you're 30 to 35, you're probably just an average athlete. And anything under 30, this is approach jump, by the way. So this would be running and jumping. Under 30, you're probably not a great athlete and you probably need to work on it. But yeah, I think just expectations on, on where it is. And the other one that I think a lot of people at least don't appreciate, it's not really a myth, but I think people don't appreciate it, is the vertical jump heights, even at the highest level of basketball, which is 
a jumping sport. The majority of guys actually don't jump that high. It's not that common to have people jumping over 35 inches, right? If you look at an NBA roster, maybe half of them could jump over 35 inches. Most guys are just really tall with really long arms, right? So when you're you know, six, seven or six, six, and then you have a six, eight or six, nine wingspan. And now you're standing reaches, you know, approaching eight and a half feet. Well, you don't have to jump a foot and a half to get to the rim. So if you have a 24 inch vertical, you could dunk the ball. So then that's how you got, you get the guys that have 36 inch verticals Well, they can do a windmill and the guys with 46 compete in the NBA dunk contest. So I think it's just having those kind of barometers of saying like, oh, okay, like it's actually very uncommon to jump 48 inches. And the reality is most NBA players are just very tall with very long arms. That's not to take away from the fact that some of them are actually tall with long arms and exceptional athletes. And and I'm I'm probably jaded because I worked in that environment. Like they're all exceptional athletes. They're all great athletes. But within that, you know, I think that those are some numbers to start appreciating. So, you know, if you say, well, I'm going to improve my jump eight inches. Okay, well, you must only jump about 28 inches currently because it's very, if you jump 35, it's very rare for you to go from 35 to a 43 inch vertical jump. So, yeah, other myths. I mean, people probably spend way too much time thinking about the calves uh, and the Achilles structure and all that. Like, all that plays a role, but some of it is physiology that you can't control, like the attachment point of some of those things. You can't control that. You can spend a whole lot of time worried about like the muscle fiber type and those things, right? By that point, you're like getting into the extra fight, the cherry on top stuff. And the majority of people, I would bring it back to say the majority of people that want to jump high should lose body fat, should get a little bit stronger, and should just start jumping more and probably use an external stimulus. So if you can't reach the rim, can you reach the backboard? You need an external stimulus because we do know external cueing or external stimuli actually create better performance stimuluses and adaptations, right? So, you know, use those things as kind of a measuring stick. And and even if you don't have any of that and you're thinking, well, all that sounds complicated. I mean, literally put a piece of tape on your hand and go and jump and touch the wall and then leave it there. And then the next day, try to put another piece above it. And over the course of eight to 12 weeks, you'll eventually be able to put the piece of tape a little bit higher, but probably not eight inches higher. What are some of your favorite exercises? You know, if we were going to put together a kind of training block, what are some of the exercises for sure you're going to have in there? Specific to the vertical jump? Yes. Uh, we're probably going to jump a lot. So, you know, be prepared for that and ignoring all the context of like breaks before gas and all that. I mean, in general, we're going to jump a lot. If you're somebody with excess body fat, we're probably going to, you know, our exercise would be eat a little bit less. And then as far as movements themselves go, we're probably going to squat or not probably. We're definitely going to squat and we're not necessarily going to squat to depth, right? That's another big one. I think maybe a myth or maybe not or misconception that you have to like squat deep all the time. Like if I want to jump higher, I'm actually probably going to move up to like half squats and quarter squats to loading the positions that you leave the ground in. We're going to trap bar deadlift because that's going to be a weight that we can actually move a little bit heavier to get more of a heavier stimuli. Another one comes to mind is, you know, ultimately what what jumping is, is is manipulating takeoff velocity. How fast are you leaving the ground? One easy way to do that would be to either create a, a simulated environment like a leg press where you're throwing the platform off of you, right? Where you're pushing away. So the feet are leaving the quote unquote ground where the ground is actually a leg press now or a shuttle MVP where you're jumping off of something. And all of those are in the horizontal plane. If you don't have that, I mean, I've literally played around with laying down on a dolly, laying next to a wall and pushing off the wall and seeing how far you can, because all of that's going to manipulate gravity. You can also do what some people have seen, attach bands above you and do assisted jumping. That's going to pull you off the ground faster. So that'll definitely be part of the program if, if we're trying to increase vertical jump. And then now you get into the question of, are you a one-footer or a two-footed jumper? 
if you're a one-footed jumper, we're probably going to do – everyone's going to do some variation of lunging or, or, sat, or split squatting. But if you're a one-footed jumper, we're probably going to do all of those same things I just said, but doing them off one foot. What else comes to mind? I mean, that's most of it, I think. And then, you know, maybe probably going to finish with some dumbbell bicep curls because when you dunk on somebody, you got to flex. So, you know, everybody's got to do that. So, yeah, real simple, man. I'm, I'm a real simple guy when it comes to this. But I do think that simple wins and consistency wins. So probably set the expectation that if we're going to test your vert, we might – if it's a specific jump program, we're probably gonna, only going to test it every four weeks because if you're testing it every day, the change that you're seeing is not their true vertical jump. That's just changes in nervous system or readiness and all of that. But uh, if we want to ch- see the true change in your vertical jump and the effectiveness of your program, you know, we might do an eight-week program. We're going to test it on week zero, four, and eight. And then maybe even like week 10, two weeks after that, just to see what kind of that tapering or, or maybe a detraining effect looks like to see where you're at outside of that program. So yeah, all that stuff comes to mind. That's great. You know, I'm thinking a common complaint that you're going to hear when people are doing jump programs is anterior knee pain. What's your thought process on that? Are there things that athletes could do to reduce the chance of that happening or if they have it to be able to take some of the stress off the knees, be able to heal those things up? Yeah, yeah. Good question. Especially with with basketball athletes, the most common complaint. So things that they can do. I mean, first and foremost, if you're if you're complaining of knee pain, anterior knee pain, uh, the first thing you probably want to do is reflect on the change in your in your jumping and basketball volume. Typically, when you hear of somebody complaining of anterior knee pain, it's coming right after a drastic change in their quote unquote workload or in this case, basketball volume. So they're probably just playing way more basketball than they were previous you know, pretty timely now that some of these college basketball programs are getting back to work and some of the kids have been sitting on, you know, the couch for the greater part of the past three months or four months. So the first thing you probably need to look at is that basketball volume and then and then start to manipulate the volume and intensity of it. So if your knees do hurt a lot, you know, I'm not going to say taking, you know, weeks off, but you might want to decrease the volume for a couple of days just to let some inflammation come down. Other two things is obviously training stimulus and the nutrition stimulus. The nutrition one is probably easier to tackle. Make sure you're getting your protein and then even collagen can help. There's different protocols out there on collagen supplementation, more nuanced of a conversation than probably, you know, what this show is. But, you know, taking collagen before you get into your plyometric or physical activity may be beneficial. And then isometrics come to mind. I'm always cautious to say isometrics because I feel like they're almost like this mysterious thing that people are using now to like cure everything. Like any problem that you have, especially tendon or bone, is like the answer has become isometrics. And I just don't think the research actually supports that. The research early on supported isometrics for quad pain and specifically using quad extensions for extended periods of isometric holding times, like 45 seconds, to decrease the pain output. But ultimately, the goal isn't just to decrease an athlete's pain acutely, right? It's to decrease their pain chronically and over time. And then ultimately, if there is a tissue issue, to improve the tissue itself. So if you have patellofemoral knee pain, can we actually improve some of the strength around that? So I do think that there is some value from isometrics. I just don't think that they're where I think some people are starting to place them. I mean, literally, the answer to everything has become some type of isometric. And then we've like removed it from the research setting, with start, which was really leg extensions into like now creating our own work exercises, which are great, but I just don't know if they're going to work as well as we think. But I do think in general, if you do have knee pain, doing something as simple as holding a leg extension at mid range. So the simple way to think about that is extend the knee all the way out and then come down halfway, holding that for 30 seconds on each side or, or the pain side for a few rounds will decrease the pain on that structure. 
Now you need to use that time because you, you have a window, what I would call a window of opportunity to train to actually do something to strengthen and support that knee. So now if you have decreased knee pain because you did isometrics, well, maybe you should do some quarter squats, some step up, some single leg work, some you know, rear foot elevated split squats, some lunging, whatever it is that you might need to actually create some strength around that, that tendon and that, and that pain point. And then, you know, use other things as well. Uh, wall sits, split squat holds, different position isometrics can all come into play. And then last but not least, you know, beyond, I think, looking at your training volume, looking at your exercise modalities, looking at your nutrition protocols or supplementation, there's probably some level of like holistic stress management that needs to happen. So you probably need to sleep a little bit more or maybe somehow find ways to decrease your stress or nervousness or anxiety, because as crazy as it sounds, and this is certainly far beyond this conversation, but you know, all of those things play a role in our body and our pain responses and the way we feel and our mood and overtraining. And so the more you can get out ahead of that, I would say, even if you don't have knee pain, go and sleep more because it might actually decrease future knee pain because you're well rested. So yeah, a lot to unpack in that, but those are the things that come to mind. This whole conversation, there's a lot to unpack. Thank you so much for taking the time and for uh, just sharing all your wisdom. And where can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, uh, I'm mainly on Instagram, you know, of the social medias. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, mainly on Instagram. Instagram handle is uh, Nijum, And then Twitter is just DrRamseyNijum. And like I said, I'm more on Instagram. So if you try to connect me on Twitter, I think I check that thing like once every two weeks. But I'm on Instagram. You know, I have to admit way too much. So that's where they can find me. Well, and hopefully I get to find you during the season. Hopefully we're going to have a season here coming up soon. And I'd love to see uh, the Zags play the Jayhawks. Yeah, I would, I would love it too. Hopefully they create some type of uh, some type of bubble where they just put, you know, all these good teams in the same bubble. Let's just let's just have a go. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, man, I hope so, too. Thank you again, man. You were great today. I learned a ton. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Now, that's a wrap on episode 53. And now I have a favor to ask. If you haven't already, it will mean a lot if you'd rate and subscribe to the podcast or even share your favorite episode with a friend. We all win when our basketball community is full of players that know how to eat, train, and lead well. And to all of you who are committed, we'll earn your X. (laughs) 